This is Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange podcast wherein a wife and her husband get each other the worst books they can get given to them by their friends. I promise that we'll get back to normal soon. For this episode of Bibliovile, Nick read The Internet is Not the Answer by Andrew Keen, and I read Burned by mother-daughter duo PC Cast and Kristen Cast. Welcome to Bibliovile. This is the Terrible Book Exchange Podcast. My name is Susan Dickinson. And my name is Mick Dickinson, the other co-host of this podcast who has been usurped. Yeah, I just felt like it was time to shake things up. That Um, for the past like 18 episodes of the podcast, you've done the welcome. And I I really wanted Uh, to get in on that this time. Sue, that's not true. Episode like three or four, you definitely went for it. Okay, I, well then episode like nineteen, a... I'm going for it again. What? I, I try to you... figure out that pattern, Dickinson. I tell you, misandry these days. It's real. It's real. It's real tough. Um, it's not real. Anyway, this is Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange podcast. I'm sorry if I don't say the entire thing, I'm gonna go crazy. It's like Sue. Have you ever read a book or watched a documentary about like geese? No. Okay, I can't say that I have either, but I know of a specific thing that geese do in which they take their beaks and they roll an egg along to a specific spot in their nest. That's cute. That is very cute. But, however, if a researcher happens to take the egg away from the goose while it is rolling the egg to that specific spot, what is? what do you think the goose does? It just keeps pretending like it's rolling. It anyway. just keeps pretending it's rolling. That's really sad. It, well, no, it like finishes doing that motion and then it stands up and goes and gets its egg, and like starts it over again. It's not like in denial. Okay, the so river in Egypt. In this scenario, you're a goose, and I'm yes. the researcher that has stolen your egg. Yes, and so I have to okay. complete the whole thing. All right, continue. Welcome <laughs> to Bibliovile. I'm really glad we had that in there twice. Uh, whatever. Anyway. Uh, this is a podcast in which a man and his wife, a wife and her husband, a woman and her husband, get each other the worst books they can find from the public library slash the group of books that their friends gave to them. It's yeah. been kind of weird lately. It's been a weird couple episodes. So normally, as Mick mentioned, we go well, to the Iowa City Public Library. We pick out books for each other. Each of us picks out the worst book that we can find. And we then exchange. Each has to read the book that the other picked out. Um, But similar to last week's episode, we were given the most hysterical Christmas present ever, which was a box of shitty books from our friends Jake and Amy, um, who are great and awesome, and we love them a lot, and they gave us really bad books, so thank you. Um, So this week, we read the, the last two books from... From the Jake and Amy box. Yeah, so I Mick, read. Yeah, I ahead. read the yellow pair of books, uh, of which you heard last uh, week. Jamaica Me Dead, which ugh, was fine. It was good, I guess. Uh, but now this week, I'm reading the other yellow book from the box. The Internet is not the answer by Andrew Keen, which. Blech. And Susan read the Black Books pair. I did. Last week I read Grim Space, which made me no, want... No, I read Grim Space several months ago. You read The Grim Rose Path. The Grim Rose Path. God, I can't even remember what the title of that book was because I hated it so much that I blocked it out of my living memory. Um, what this about your week, dead memory? This week I read Burned, which was something. something. I tried really, really hard this week to not... To not express as much to Mick because yeah, I think I'm in the dark I there. think I've started this trend where I reveal a whole lot to Mick about the books. Like last week, when on page seven, I was like, "This is the worst book I've ever read, and I hate it, and it's terrible, and I'm about to have a meltdown." I, I actually on page seven. I do not know if Susan enjoyed, did not enjoy, or flat out hated this book. I have no idea. I know. I think I need to keep the mystery alive a little bit more. I think I yeah. need to stop talking to you. Yeah, that pickup artist does not deserve the death penalty. I think stopping talking to each other is really a good. It thing. Makes for, for a, a great marriage. relationship. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, recently, though, it's been pretty warm outside. Uh, here and I, and I hate it. I know it's it's like 
It's not supposed to be warm, dog. It's February. And there's a part of me, like, we sat out on our porch today for, like, an hour and a half. And we, like, hung out there and had a beer and talked. And it was really nice. And that's one of my favorite things to do in the summer. And so part of me is like, this is awesome. We're doing this in February. But also not. And other things that have been changing since the early 90s, much like the climate, would have to be the internet. Uh, so can I get kudos on that fantastic segue? It's a great segue, buddy. Sp- yeah. Speaking Good job. Of, speaking of segues. Um, huh? Huh? Speaking of segues. Huh? It's a segue about segues. That's a good job. It's a good job. Great job. So, Mick, this book. This, Tell me about this book, book, The Internet is Not the Answer, is probably the book I have most hated ever that I almost 90% agree with. Okay, let me parse that out. Let me parse that so out. So, it's not the book that you've hated the most ever. But of books that I have agreed 90% with, it's the book that I've hated the most. All right. So Sorry, you grammar. hate it less than the Ann Coulter book. God, yes. <laughs> okay, good. I just wanted to clarify My that. My life was not worse whilst <laughs> reading this. My fundamental yeah. understanding of the human race was not altered for the negative while I was reading this. So is the internet the answer? Uh, I gotta tell you, it's not. It's not according to you or it's not according, it's not according to, to you. whoever wrote this book? Oh, yeah. Andrew Keene, uh, he of the world's worst about the author photograph. If you could see the uh, the world's worst about the author photograph, you would understand just how bad this book is going to be. Everything the book is, is pre- prevalent and present on its quotes that are just absolutely terrible. In the preface, by the way, the preface, the preface... Mm-hmm. We haven't even started the book. Yet. We haven't even started the book. There's pages of the question is the thing. Oh. Guess what the first the line of the last paragraph is? Is the internet the answer? No. What is it? Well, I thought you, I was answering your question. The oh. line of the last paragraph is no, the internet is not the answer. Oh. <laughs> and I feel like I see where we got our title. Yeah, I feel like if Breaking Bad had had a segment where Walter White looked at the camera and went, "I guess I'm Breaking Bad," you know, like, Bleh. or if during Friends, if Ross had looked at the like, "Hey guys, I guess we're all really kind of," and looked at the camera, being like, "Friends," and then it went into that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So no one told you life was gonna, gonna be, be this way. way. Uh, if you were not listening to this, po- or if you are listening to this podcast and did not. Clap along with that. Get out of my life. Anyway. You can stay in mine. It's okay. We have two separate lives. Since when? Uh, the pull quotes and the quotes around this book are absolutely terrible and just clue you in so hard to want... It. This book has its head so far up its ass that the lump in its throat is its nose. That took me a minute to like puzzle out a little bit, but okay, yeah. I'm with you. I'm here. Here are the. I'm gonna read all of the pull quotes present on the. Not all of them, but the pull quotes present on the cover for you. Okay. Andrew Keene has written a very powerful and daring manifesto, which ugh, questioning whether the internet lives up to its own espoused values. He is not an opponent of internet culture. He is its conscience and must be heard. Does the internet have espoused values? Uh, internet owners do. They tend to. Oh, okay. Think more Reddit than, like, Washington Post or whatever. Okay. Um. Is this a manifesto? Kind of. stupid. The, uh, Mike, Mark Bauerlein, author of The Dumbest Generation, which we're already getting there because every... Ugh, I just... Anything that talks about generations in total is stupid. Andrew Keene has once again shown himself to be one of the sharpest critics of the Silicon Valley hype, greed, egotism, and inequity. His tales are revealing, his analysis biting. Beneath the criticism is a moral commitment to a defense of humane society, the right to be left alone, a fair shot of success, and the access. Okay, that's pretty fine, right? That, like, sums up his main mm-hmm. points. But... Going on and reading the rest of it is terrible. 
Even the pull quotes are saying, like me, you find much to disagree with, but you won't be able to put it down. This book is a book that demands reaction. The valley will never be the same. And it, it's just the book version of like, I'm just, bro, bro, I'm just starting a conversation. Bro, I'm just starting a conversation. If you, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Let's have a conversation. But I'm just starting a conversation. So it's just controversial it's not. For the sake of being controversial. It's he's, not. he's just saying things to start an argument? No, it's no? not controversial. Is that what he's trying to do? If it seems like it, but it's not controversial. Here's the main thesis of the book, of which is... This book in general is just a blog post stretched across 250 pages. I read during my brief... In the introduction alone, the same quote six times. And that is... Our build, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us, and we shape our society, thereafter they shape it shapes us. Six times, seven times maybe, in the introductory paragraph, or Oof. like a chapter alone. And it's very clear that this dude has a thought, good for him, and I usually agree with that thought. But overall, it's just like, dog, did we need a whole book about this? So do you think this was one of those things that honestly did start out as a think piece? Like it was a pretty pretty fairly popular think piece and someone brought up the idea to this dude of making it a book and so he did possibly i i could see it that he submitted it to his think piece foes at they're not foes but like think piece friends at what's famous for think like the guardian the guardian yeah. or HuffPost kind of too. HuffPost, yeah as a big think piece buzzfeed too. buzzfeed isn't much for thinking at all much less think pieces parts of buzzfeed you read i'm gonna go with none <laughs> but these are also by andrew keen the cult of the amateur how today's internet is killing our culture microphone i know you can't transmit this to people but i'm staring at you angrily digital vertigo how today's online social revolution is dividing diminishing and disorienting us and then now the internet is not the answer i feel like maybe all of those could have been combined into one book but it's terrible the nomenclature and the verbiage it uses is awful this is used in every just it means itself so much when it uses this word these words epic fail Uh, i hate Y'all, it's not 2011. That phrase, epic it's fail. It's not 2011 uh, You want to know the worst part? You want to know the worst part, too? Uh, sure. Uh, high schoolers, yep. I did not see anyone use the word failure across a like a paper writing segment. I've they never seen a high school. Fail. They just use fail instead of failure, as is the correct usage of that word. You know why I think they do that, Nick? The internet. Because the internet... That's because the internet is bad. The internet is not the answer, uh, Nick. uh, 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 Well, if the person writing that the internet is not the answer also uses the phrase epic fail, then what's the whole goddamn point? Ugh. I just feel like anyone who can be described by the word smarmy is not a person with whom I would like to interact in any way. This guy is the ultimate in smarmy. I'm not into that. The first sentence is just terrible. I just have to... It's... This internet we've been promised by many evangelists is the answer. Oh, thank God. I'm glad that you've set up the book in which to provide a context for your title. Okay, but I have to ask a question. Yep. The answer to what? Mm Mm-hmm. Life, the universe, and everything. Does he provide any insight as to what question is being asked that the internet is or is not the answer to? Well, how many mans must... How many... How many mans? How many mans must a road walk down? The internet. Yeah, it's not the answer to that question. No, we've been promised it's the answer, but to what question we don't know. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, I'm going to get out the number of ways I hate this book, and then it's going to get a little even more political. I'm sorry. I know I already swore heavily once. It's going to get a little political here. Good. Uh, It seems to want to live in this internet society and these internet priorities while also decrying it, Mm -hmm. which 
fine. I understand that kind of impulse. But unfortunately, the internet sensibilities of, like, premier interneters is awful. He quotes someone, Thomas Friedman, uh, the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. And so I really can't blame the author himself for this quote, but the fact that he used it, like, Friedman says, the world has gone from connected to hyper-connected. And I just, I underline it because now I apparently own this book. Thank you, Jake and Amy, for putting this on my permanent bookshelf. But I underlined it and then wrote, why even? Like, it's gone from connected to hyper-connected. It's gone from hot to hyper-hot. It's gone from long to hyper-long. It informs us nothing while seeming to further these things. I don't know. I don't know Thomas Friedman. I've never read a lot of his stuff. But from what that quote has given me, it absolutely sucks. It's, I had to stop on page six. I had to stop because in this sort of six, page six, in this sort of trying to live inside the internet culture while at the same time decrying it, he's using their buzzwords and awful, like I hate buzzwords all the way around, but trying to use them at the same time as decrying their use just gets weird. And it's not a satire. Like you can write a satire. That's fine. Yeah. But it's not. And he uses the word un. Amazon is the un company. Facebook is the un social network. All of these things are the un conference. And it he uses it so many times on page six alone that I had to stop reading and say, like, this has lost all meaning. Yeah. And maybe that's the point is that all of these internet values that internet founders have a spouse and everything. Are, have lost all meaning and they don't actually like matter at all maybe that's what he's going for but i just wanted to punch him in the face not inter- the internet and i feel like if you're gonna go that angle it needs to be written in a very particular way you don't want it to lose all meaning yeah you want to point out how ridiculous left. it is but you don't want it to lose meaning completely so i feel like i don't know i just feel like that from the way it sounds, was not particularly well handled. No, I feel like I could have written this entire book from reading chapter one. I yeah. did read more than chapter one, but I feel like I could have written the entire book from reading chapter one. What were the main points of chapter one? Like, what were, if you were to give it, like, three bullet points? So I don't know about chapter one, but the first part of the book has to do a lot with, like, the beginning of the internet, which is mm-hmm. a pretty entertaining read. I enjoy mm-hmm. reading about, like, the history of the internet. It was kind of like a 99% or 99% invisible episode about the beginning of the internet with like we want these computers to be able to talk to each other so we don't have to mail each other oh wait so that means we need like a universal programming language oh wait that means we need some sort of like actual programming language yeah oh wait we need some sort of connected cable oh wait that means we need to have this infrastructure and everything was pretty interesting um but that came across as pretty stupid in the book because he says something like Oh, or he leads to like these people really, really concerned about the future of the internet in the fifties, and you can tell that he means it like, oh, how stupid were they to be concerned with it so far, and now we're so f- much further than this. Yeah. But what I read it is like people have been concerned that this thing is going to ruin the world since the fifties, before it was like legitimately invented. Why should I listen to you about it? Yeah. It's like when Socrates decries the written language as being able to like take away from people's working memory because now we get to write it down instead of having to remember it all the time. Well, and I think that's like, that's a concern that creators of new phenomena or new technology have or the people who are around for that new phenomena. Like, you wonder how it's going to impact the future. And at times that's probably fair. Yeah. What impact is this going to have? I don't know. I am not saying that. I'm not saying that the internet has not had an impact. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. Yeah. Everything that's had an impact has had an impact. Absolutely, yeah. But the way of saying like, oh, they've been worried about this forever decreases rather than increases your point. You should be like, this is a new problem we are facing. Yeah. Should be your thesis and the overall thesis of the book at its heart is basically the internet promised a democratization of wealth of information of influence uh you don't have to be known to get known that sort of stuff and in that general 
or and then it goes on to say like and it hasn't delivered on that promise mm-hmm. like it has not provided that democratization has not provided that sort of balance of wealth and has not provided that sort of balance of getting known and to that ex- to that extent i i get it and i agree and i fully agree i think that's fully true but it's such it's like the most internet of books where the most internet denzian of books wherein you can read it and agree with it and still freaking hate every single thing about it because that nothing sums up the internet better to me than being able to read something agree with it and hate the fact that you had to read it Mm -hmm. but the worst thing about this book is that it brings up silicon valley is ruining san francisco it's gentrifying at a like increasingly alarming rate of people like people who work at these companies cannot afford to live in the city where these companies work because the executives of these companies drive up rents and everything. And even people who, like, clean the floors at everywhere can't afford to live at the, the in the city that they clean the floors of. Yeah. And that's a huge problem. And I very much agree. But the answer of this book is basically like, well, let's get the... At the end, I read the last chapter of it and it's called The Answer, which... Bleh, jerk off motion. Yeah. But the answer is like, let's get the government to regulate it. And it's focused on like Facebook crawling over your data, which I get. That's a problem. And Amazon selling out a small business, which I get. That's a problem. But its answer is like, let's get the government to regulate it. Let's learn from the progressives of the Industrial Revolution era and get more government regulation. And look, like, look at me right now. I enjoy government regulation. I think Mm -hmm. it is a good thing for wild off businesses but it's treating the internet like the wild west and we just have to settle it when its own examples prove and this is where we start getting political its own examples prove how the thought process itself is wrong where you're looking at the industrial revolution and saying oh we should do that to take us back to where we already were we should go back to the pre-internet age where workers are protected in their 40-hour work weeks and they have unions and all sorts of things when if there is anything for a point for this book to make with the libertarian kind of ideal of the internet and the wild west and the i get to do whatever i want as long as i'm making money and the government can't tell me what to do should not be the government regulates you like they did John D. Rockefeller. It should be the government gets to regulate you like they did Jeff Bezos. Like, we will Jeff Bezos or whatever. You need to confront the fact, and it brings it up in this book and it doesn't confront it or address it. You need to confront the fact that automization and the lack of human need in labor is coming and it's happened and it's only going to get worse. The pure simple fact of capitalism is that they will seek to cut out as much cost as they mm-hmm. can and that the largest part of cost in a company will be paying its workers and so by being able to work without workers people will be out of a job the product will be cheaper which is good the internet overall economically for the vast majority of people in general has been good there have been specific examples san francisco's real estate the laying off of workers at these small businesses, mm-hmm. the lack of any sort of regulation for data. The specific examples are bad. The overall impact of the internet is good. And the reaction of this book to the internet would be, let's roll those good parts back to get back to pretty much before the internet. Mm-hmm. And what I am saying is, by looking at the Industrial Revolution and saying we should do the similar things that Teddy Roosevelt did with the Bull Moose Party and the progressives and getting sort of the 40-hour work week for people instead of the 80 or whatever hour work week, the minimum wage instead of the not minimum wage. It, The Industrial Revolution did not seek to return their society to pre-Industrial Revolution standards. Yeah, if you're, ha- if you're experiencing progress, if you're being presented with technology that is allowing society to progress, you can't use Passive. old ways of dealing with it you have to you have to also be progressive exactly so yeah yeah, yeah. to be progressive like the progressives of a hundred years ago is not progressive it is no, regressive it's regressive pretty because, much by definition yeah exactly and so instead of this book being courageous and brave and saying like we need something new it's saying we should do what these people did and the minimum wage is not going to work the 40-hour work week 
reformation and uh, repairs is not going to work. We have to face the fact that the American worker does not need to work 40 hours a week anymore. Getting away from that sort of ideal and that sort of, like, uh, idea. I know I just said ideal. But that sort of idea that the 40-hour work week is the work week is what is going to fix things. It's We don't need 40 hours to do the crap that we used to have to do. Because we now have different technology than we had in the time when the 40-hour work week was mandated. Exactly. I mean, if we pay attention to a single... I'll give you two examples. One is the automotive industry, Mm -hmm. right? So say that cars become better, they become uh, whatever. Uh, There's a whole different thing with the car industry, automotive industry, in which you do not need to buy a new automotive every single year, which makes it harder to sell them. That's separate. But robots, more than ever, are capable of building a car. And that's good for the car buyer because assumably, according to economics, which is not necessarily true, those cars should start becoming cheaper. You're not having to pay workers anymore. You're just paying to power your robots. Mm -hmm. But of course, they're not getting cheaper because why would they, if people are willing to buy them at X amount of dollars, why would they buy them at, why would you minus anything off of that X, right? But there's no longer a person in Detroit that is building that car that's getting the money for building that car that they can use to buy that car or other things. They no longer have that money and income in the society that's instead going to the owner of whoever gets the money from selling the car that gets built by the robots, right? And so the basic of this book is saying, okay, all this money is being concentrated in the 1%. They use Silicon Valley. But it happens everywhere that there's yeah. automation and it's, whatever. And I, I think that's a good thing to point out. Like, it's not just Silicon Valley. It's, it's not, benefiting it's from technology. It's, it's everywhere. Not, yeah, exactly. And so It's the 1% everywhere, not it, just in one specific place. Exactly, because they don't need workers yeah. as much anymore. And so not even the automotive industry with robots, but think about the cashier at your Walmart where there's a self-checkout. There has to be one dude to check IDs for... You know, alcohol and gun purchases and three dudes to put things back on the shelves at night. And even then, we might get uh, robots to do that for us. We don't need workers anymore for like a lot of things that we used to need workers for. And so we have to address as a society that people don't need to go to work as much. And so when we expect that people go to work and do the work that they used to do 30 years ago, we are continually going to fail. Right? Yeah. I mean, imagine that... I know that self-driving cars are not perfect right now, but they have progressed much faster than a lot of people, will, especially me, were willing to give them. Mm-hmm. What happens when they take the self-driving car just in one industry and put it into trucking? That's, mil- I would say, thousands of workers, not millions, thousands of workers that are now out of a job that used to be hardworking, yeah. beneficial to society 40 workers. 40 hours a week. 40 yeah. hours a week, possibly even more, that now don't have to go anymore, that they don't have anything to do. Thousands of Americans that now sit at home instead of doing their job. Are they lazy? No, absolutely not. We, ha- as a society, have positively progressed beyond their need to work a hard, tiring, stressful yep. job. And so as a society, we have to come to grips and recognize that people don't need to go to work. And what are we going to do when we find that people don't need to work? That's where this book should be going, and it didn't. It said that internet is bad, 1% is bad, oh my gosh, this is bad. We need government regulation, we need progressives, we need Teddy Roosevelt of the 21st age to come and answer this. We don't need Teddy Roosevelt of the 21st age. I love Teddy Roosevelt. We need something beyond Teddy Roosevelt. We need a person who realizes that people don't need to go to work. What are we going to do to help these people that don't need to go to work? And my answer, of course, is basically social like you need to pay they need to live they deserve to live even if they don't have a job for a book that seemed to be and i think tried to make itself to be controversial and look what this guy is saying like it just doesn't seem like it really went anywhere no would would you say that's true yeah i would absolutely say that's true because it didn't i could have wrote this thing 
three days ago from reading page one. Mick did mention several times from like page six. He was like, I already know everything this book is going to say. I, I've seen the same points crop up in the dozens of times. The same quotes put like prop up in the dozens of times. It's ridiculous. And I like I agree with you in what you say that, you know, the book thinks, oh, we need we need a Teddy Roosevelt of the 21st century. And I think it kind of proved itself wrong in that clearly we need something unique to the time and situation that we're in. The, yeah, the Industrial Revolution was a huge revolution. We cannot understate yeah. the amount of things that... I mean, watches and clocks were universalized because of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Our idea of a day and needing to be at something on time was because of the Industrial Revolution and works shifts. But this is different. Exactly. It is, it yeah. is equally... It is equally impactful. It is equally revolutionary. It is equally... Like, the internet, I think, has equally changed our concept of how we live our lives in yeah. a lot of different ways. But, I don't, like, I just don't think it make. I agree with you. I don't think it makes any sense to make direct comparisons to the Industrial Revolution because maybe there are some direct comparisons that you can make. But yeah, there, there are, are things that are different because we are in a different time and place and we have different certainly. technological capabilities. I mean, there are a lot of, like metaphorical comparisons and allegorical comparisons with the beginning of the industrial revolution was uh, notable for basically the robber barons the version the 19th century version of the one percent or whatever with john d rockefeller exposing or not exposing but like taking advantage of all these workers and breaking unions and all sorts of things so that the money and the monopoly from standard oil could come straight to him and his shareholders Whereas Amazon and Facebook and all those other things do not have necessarily the same profit. Like, I mean, Amazon still is pretty much losing money. You know that, right? Yeah. Be- but Bezos himself, Jeff Bezos, is making billions of dollars and shareholders are making money somehow without ever actually making a profit. But to look back and see like the robber barons and not see them as kind of allegorical to the new Silicon Valley 1% is ridiculous. But to say that we need to employ the same maneuvers that we did against the robber barons, against the 1%, is ignoring the the reality that the, the old stuff was changed by the minimum wage and constraining labor to only 40 hours a week. When now we have to realize that labor, labor is beneath 40 hours a week. And I'm getting back into my whole argument... No, I think, and I think the point that you're ultimately, to simplify it a lot, trying to make (laughs) is that times change. We also have to change. We need to learn from history, but we also need to let history inform the decisions that we make now without specifically repeating the the decisions that we made 10, 20, 40, 100 years ago. Yeah, basically. And I'm sorry that this got kind of like serious and legitimate political discussion or economic discussion that's it for me i'm gonna (laughs) take a pause we're gonna get back to like humorful wasn't this book bad this book wasn't this book is bad it's up its own ass but the worst part about this book was its lack of chutzpah yeah i'm kind of disappointed i was hoping that the book would take more of a controversial stance that you could rail against and then that would be, I don't know, humorous or that you would, huh. I mean, you 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 did become angry about it, but I just feel like what I was expecting, it fell a little bit flat. Yeah, it, it wasn't that it was wrong and made me angry and like, look at this crazy son of a gun. Yeah. It was just like, be braver, you know? Yeah. And all in all, you know, this whole thing, it has... A capitalist answer, which is what the people who are in charge of these things would say, or like a a libertarian Ayn Rand answer, which is like, well, I'm rich, you're not, have fun. Basically, like, figure out another app or whatever, and if you're good enough with your app, then you can make the billions of dollars that I make. And there's also, this book tries to have the Republican, not small r, as in like, Republican type government, not necessarily the Republican Party answer of like well the government can help with it and elected representatives yay but i don't think that does anything and i think there's a third answer that the book really ignores 
and it like it relates back to everything I was talking about with the workers don't need to work anymore. What are we going to do with it? And I think that like leans into a little bit of socialism. Yeah. That there is no longer a need for this working class as much as there used to be. We need to get those billionaires instead of building million dollar mansions on the coast of the Golden Gate Bridge to support the people that work for them in a different way. If that's a living wage, I would be in favor of that. If that's other ways, I don't know, right? I'm a high school social studies teacher. I am not a tax expert or a politician or whatever it may be. But I think that that answer is not, okay, well, the smart and the programmer thrive and the worker and the actual program, like... The guy who has an idea for the program thrives, and the guy who does the programming takes the bus to work every morning and has to go back out to Oakland every day because he can't afford to live in the city he works in. Your your critique that you mentioned, if I can sum it up super briefly in a phrase that you used, was be braver. Yeah. And I think that, like, I think that kind of describes a lot of our political views, too. Like, be be braver. You know, maybe take a bigger risk to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think I think that's a maybe not something everyone would agree with, but I think that's a fair point to take. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It, the age both of, with the book and with life. <laughs> the the age that this book ascribes to is done. Yeah. And it's not because our generation is stupid and dumb and fleeting, as this book references. Yeah. It's because that, like, for lack of a better phrase shit has changed it's it's done it's gone it's in the past and it's not like shit changes a lot i don't think people realize how much shit changes shit changes a lot and shit has changed and we need to change with shit anyway i got really serious in like into my stump speech as it were but Sue, you read a less serious, less chutzpah referencing book. I did. So I have no political opinions about this book. (laughs) Oh, about this book. I have political opinions. (laughs) None that have anything to do with this book because this book was fluff. Oh. Do you remember when we were in college and they would sometimes serve Oreo fluff in the dining center? Dog. Yeah. And it was like, this is delicious. I know that it contains nothing of value to me i know that it's not good for me but it's really really tasty yep like 90 percent. do you also remember there was another kind of fluff that they made it wasn't oreo fluff it had some orange sort of fluff? jello in it yeah, and it wasn't fluff. very good oh, then it must not be orange fluff because i love i don't remember what it was but it was like it was just sort of there it wasn't particularly interesting it wasn't good for you so by any means. So this is like corn set fluff. Yeah, this is like bad fluff. It doesn't really accomplish anything. It just sort of is. It's very sugary. It's yeah. like the e-television of books. Pretty much. I read, <laughs> by the way, I read Burned. Burned is the seventh book Oof. in the yep, the seventh. You got that right. One, two, three, four, five, One six, for- Seven. One for every day of Adventist. Ugh. It is the seventh book in the House of a Night series written by mother daughter duo PC <laughs> cast and Christian cast. Ugh, political correctness. PC. Yeah, I suppose. But even grosser, <laughs> mother daughter duo. Was it? Was there banging in this book? There was no banging. Okay. Well, okay, well, there what? was a little bit of banging. There was no explicit banging. It just oh, sort of happened. Behind the real the mother daughter kind of. The real mother daughter kind. So in when this particular book was written, the daughter, and I'm not sure if mother is PC or daughter is PC or mother is Kristen or who's who. But the daughter, when this particular book was written, is a college student, but it's the sixth one, which makes me think that they had to have started the series when the daughter was still in high school. Which explains a lot. Maybe middle school. Gross. Which, that's bold to, to, and I think the mother had been an author on her own before she co-wrote books with the daughter, 
But that's still bold to be like, I'm going to let my middle school or high school daughter co-write something with me. Well, I think you're vastly overestimating the amount of time it takes to write a book like this. When it's paint by numbers, you don't have to do a lot. That's true. I liked to think, and I don't know this to be true, but I liked to think that I could tell the difference between which chapters were written by the mom and which chapters were written by the daughter. Because there were some that really, really just seemed like a high school kid wrote them. Ugh, gross. The, the dialogue, and I elaborate on this a lot more in my blog post, but the dialogue in this book is so gross. It's so gross. And it, it's gross in a couple of different ways. One of the ways in which it is gross is that each character, I think, was assigned a sort of archetype. Like, this character is going to be the Southern Belle. This character is going to be the Spoiled Rich Valley Girl. This character is going to be the super old school Scottish warrior who wears the kilt. Um, Yeah. All of those coexist. Wait, no. So, Southern Belle. Yep. Valley Girl. Yep. Scottish warrior. You betcha. The, like, by our powers combined, Captain Planet, second reference. Is that what's going on here? Some sort of multicultural tokenism of white people? No, and yes. <laughs> Maybe? Question I don't know. Mark? I didn't read it. I did read it, and I still don't know. So all I'm of excited. the characters have their own very specific and not very well done dialect that they speak in. Gross. So the book is split essentially in two. One half of the plot takes place. This is urban fantasy that takes place in a real city. Oh. And it takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay, I have a question. What is, I probably don't have an answer. Why does no urban fiction ever take place north of the Mason-Dixon? I think there's some sort of like southern gothicness to the south that just appeals to urban fiction. Maybe. Like cobwebs on manor eaves. You know, I think there's also, I think some authors just really, they think that they can encapsulate the south and they think that they can, I think it may, might be easier to say, I'm going to write a character that's from the South because they're they think easy. they know what that means. Yeah, they're yeah. dumb, right? Yeah. And so I think in this book in particular, that's encapsulated by this character. Her name is Stevie Ray. Wait, that's a person. That's a person. That's a piano player. Yeah. Or a guitar player. Well, Who there's Stevie Wonder and then there's Ray Charles. No, I think you're combining no, those two. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, yeah. Yep. You're correct. Yeah. Um, this character is a. 16 or 17 year old girl who is the only red vampire vampire is spelled with a y instead of an i um she's the only red vampire in the world uh and she wait, created in the world? a class of red fledglings and she goes to school at this place called the house of night first of all let's take a break so that i can splice in some sort of stevie ray vaughn song <laughs> Next. Now that that's over. Next. Let, it's a good song. He's a good guitar player. But she's the only one in the world and she's 16? Yes. Is this some sort of like Katniss Everdeen like well, wish fulfillment? Well, so that part isn't really addressed at all because, again, this is book number seven. So there's a lot of stuff that supposedly is addressed in books one through six that just doesn't come up here you know in harry potter how harry gets one year older every book yeah was she nine when this book series started do you think potentially this book also really felt like it started in the middle so it might be like multiple books per year of their lives because i really felt like this book just started in the middle of something that i didn't understand but stevie ray vaughn Stevie Ray is again 16 or 17 years old she She. likes to consider herself very unique because she's the only red vampire in the world hey I have to give it to her that's pretty unique and she's also a high priestess oh she communes with the earth element there are five elements uh, of course 
Um, the normal ones, earth, fire, water, air, and oh, then the fifth God. element. Heart. Well, I thought you were going to say recreation That's a as Cedar a Cedar Rapids, Rapids joke. person. I yeah, you. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the fifth element is spirit. It's like, yeah. I'm sorry to keep referencing this, but it's like MFers never seen Captain Planet or literally the movie named The Fifth Element. So she's a high priestess of the Earth Element and she speaks in this super overdone Southern accent. Wait, the main character has a Southern accent? One of the main characters. And it's written as, so, like, It's written as a Southern accent. And she doesn't pronounce any of her Gs. That sounds aggravating. It's just very annoying to read. And, like, that's part of the reason why I'm like, oh, I can totally tell that a high school kid, I suppose she's a college kid at this point, but she started it when she was presumably a high school kid, wrote this. Because this is probably how I would have written, if I had an English assignment that was like, write a character who's from the South, I probably would have tried to do something stupid like this, too. Yeah, were there a lot of pronouns that did not relate or did not clue you into the actual proper nouns that they were uh, referencing? Yes. Oh, then that's definitely a high schooler thing. Yeah. They did this. Who? Who? Um, And it was just, it was just very frustrating. And then, so I, I... I brought this up because I was talking about how every character kind of has an archetype. So another one of the characters, she doesn't live in Tulsa, but she's friends with Stevie Ray. She lives in Venice. Italy? Because, yes, Venice, Italy. Because apparently this is like a new modern vampire trope, I think, that we decided vampires that are vampires from originate from Italy. Yeah. What yeah. is that? <laughs> what is that? I think I want to say that was Twilight. Twilight did it. I want yeah, uh, I think that's true. So the vampires there I I just want you to appreciate this. Okay. The Vampire High Council. Cause of course there's a high council. Of course there's a high council. Wait, was high council was high council spelled with a Y? Where? High? No. Oh. Get balls. But it was capitalized. <laughs> so the High Council exists in Italy, and there's another another main character whose name is Aphrodite, but she's not the goddess Aphrodite. Oh. She's just a, she's not even a vampire, I don't think. She's a prof, prophetess, prophetess, prophetess? A, a prophet. She's a prophet, a there's lady no, prophet. There's no, yeah, an oracle, I suppose. An oracle? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, But she's that, and she... <laughs> She lives in Venice and she is... But she's that, whatever. She is working with the High Council. Good. And her archetype is that she's the, like, she's the spoiled rich valley girl. And the big metaphor that she comes to learn about herself is that her words are like daggers and they can do damage to people. And every significant prophet or vampire or priestess has a protector called a warrior in capitals oh so and their warrior is someone who stays with them at all times serves to protect them and also has a tendency to have a very personal loving and oftentimes sexual relationship with them too wow and so aphrodite for example has a warrior whose name is Darius. I think he is a vampire. And so, like, all of their conversations revolve around him trying to help her realize that she's kind of a big old bee. What? <laughs> That's it. No, what is it about these sorts of books and the weird sort of everyone does this sort of rules? Well, like, the last vampire book I had, every single vampire has a beloved. Yeah. And now every single non-vampire has a warrior. Yeah. What, like, is this just like a... And they all have consorts. Well, yeah. I don't know what it is about the word consort that has made it into urban vampire fiction, but now every single urban vampire fiction book has a consort. I do have to give it to Jake and Amy on this one. These two books fit perfectly within the bibliophile ranks for urban fiction and these sort of capitalized businesses. But what is it about these rules? It's very weird. And 
that brings me to another point about this book. And clearly, I came in in book seven, so... Lucky number. I don't... I have not been around for the establishment of the rules, but to me, it really seems like they created a bunch of rules just so they could break them for no reason. <laughs> or they created, and this is another this is another big bibliophile trope, they created problems that they instantly solved. Yeah, so it's like, why create them? The two main plots, there are Oof. there are two separate never good kind of plot lines that are going on. One in Tulsa, one in Venice. <laughs> um, the, the plot line that's going on in Venice is that there's a a vampire she's called the red one um and her the name is her name is Zoe and <laughs> <laughs> no I'm sorry wait a minute I know we're running short of time but Zoe yeah we've got Aphrodite Darius Stevie Ray she my prop. which Tulsa Thanatos oof um Stark Kelowna Rephaim and Zoe. But Zoe is like the vampire from what you led me to believe, right? One of them, yeah. Yeah, well, like, why would the high vampire... Just be Zoe? Be Zoe. I don't know. Presumably there was some context given to that in the previous six books, but her name is just Zoe. They hey, call her Z or Zoe. If, if I can give one piece of advice to aspiring authors out there, and I know that I'm not necessarily the most accomplished author in the world or even a respected person in once. general. Yeah, sure. Uh, even a respected person in general. If I could give this one piece of advice. Names matter. Names matter. If you're going to have a foreboding uh, element, don't name them a normal name. If you're going to have like this weird otherworldly thing... Don't name them a, a, a normal name. And if 90% of your characters are going to be named otherworldly names, don't throw in a Zoe or a Derek oh, or a Chase. Because they're all going to congregate at the Jimmy John's. Exactly. And then people are going to make fun of them in a podcast. Like us. Like us. Welcome. So this, this plot line, question mark, um... <laughs> Zoe, who's a red one, she's the only vam, the only Wait. red vampire. No, your main character is the only red vampire. Oh, I mis- I mixed those up. Anyway, so, who's the red one? I think that's Zoe. But then, who's the red vampire? I think Aphrodite is the prophetess. I don't know. I'm confusing Stevie everything Ray. already because no, Stevie Ray is the red one. I don't even know anymore. So I'm just going to keep keep on moving. It doesn't really keep matter. On no one should ever read this book. So Zoe, <laughs> Zoe had a confrontation with an immortal one. That's all in capital letters. Named Kelowna. And Kelowna like killed Iowa? one of Zoe's consorts. Okay. And so Zoe's soul shattered. Naturally. So now Zoe's friends are trying to figure out a way to bring her back. Wait. And so her warrior, whose name is Stark, is trying to find a way to go into the other world yeah. to help her repair her soul so she can come back and they can fight Kelowna, who's the guy that killed her. And then mm. the person that he is, like, working with, whose name is Neferet. Mm. Um, that's one of the plot lines. That's about all I know about that. And then... What happens? Does Neferet die? Well, Do they win? Um, Neferet does not die... Kelowna does, and uh, Stark makes it into the other world to help Zoe put her soul back together, and then she makes it back. I have to say, souls are not necessary for living. I thought that was like a major point, is that you can No, live. apparently in this one they are necessary for living, because her soul has shattered. It is in other world. It is in pieces, and her body is just dormant. It's It's laying there. It's not doing anything. It's not responsive. Oh, so a soul is consciousness. Yes. It's not like it. All right. Yeah, a soul is consciousness. One. The other plot line is that Stevie Ray, due to the consequences of actions that presumably happened in the previous book, has imprinted with (laughs) 
a creature called a raven mocker. And apparently that's a really bad thing because oh. everyone around her thinks that raven mockers are bad. Mm. I don't know what imprinting is because it's never really explained. What? It's definitely got some sexual connotations. Oh! 100% got some sexual then connotations. Then it's not real imprinting. Because real imprinting is like if a goose sees you and it comes out of the egg, then you're like its mother or whatever. That's like real imprinting. No, Plus this... getting it to like Freudian mother This has some... And I think this is also a, a Twilight throwback because yep. I read Twilight. I'm How I'm I'm not like so? No, I did and this was why I read Twilight. All of my friends in middle school were super into it and I was like, I don't get it. I'm gonna read these books and figure out what the point is. And I read them all and I didn't know what the point was. So imprinting like from experience. what I remember in Twilight is like it's not like the goose thing. But it's something like you just sort of, it's out of your control and you form some sort of really deep bond with a different creature. But in Twilight, I think it's explicitly non-sexual because one of the main characters imprints with a baby. Yeah, but mm, kind of falls in love with her too from what I've read. It's true. Super sketchy. So in this series, it is explicitly sexual. And, and... Stevie Ray has a boyfriend, and then she imprints with this Raven Mocker person. Oh, it's a person who everyone thinks is is a bad guy because he's related to bad guys, and so she is trying to figure out how to like work around this situation and protect the person that she's imprinted with. Without her friends finding out, because she's afraid of what their reaction will be. This book raises 10,000 more questions for everything that it answers. But you know what? You just don't care enough to ask them. A raven mocker? Is it someone who's like, hey, nice car, you son of a gun. Nice black feathers. No, I hate you so much. It's someone who his, his corporeal form is some sort of an imitation of a raven. Like so a like, crow. He's a he's a person, but he has big raven wings. His name is Rephaim. Like a crow magnum. Sort of, I guess. <laughs> it's very it's funny. just like I just if you think about it, could not make myself care about this book. And even the really bad books. Not the Grimrose Path. That one I'll make an exception for. Thanks, Jake. But even some of the other bad books that I've read, like Crimson Vale was mm. bad. The Terry Gary book Ooh. about the Nikki Sticks, Very the scary. girl who tried to get, like, these books are bad. But I, like, I could read them and I could be like, I am at least interested to find out how this ends. I'm at least sort of vaguely invested in the character. Or at least, like, if I stopped reading this book in the middle, I would sort of wonder, what happened? Like, that's one of my motivations for wanting to do a sequels episode is because there's a couple books that I'm like, I want to know what happens in this. This book I honestly could have stopped on, like, page 25 and I couldn't have cared less. There was nothing in this book that made me care about the characters. And really not a whole lot resolves the plotline that you're supposed to, I believe, be the most invested in is that of Zoe and whether or not she can pull her, basically get her shit together, like pull her soul back together and get back to the real world. Spoiler alert, she does, but you don't really care. Mm. And you don't care about any of the characters. They all kind of suck. Even if the characters themselves didn't suck, the way that their dialogue is written would make you hate them. Ah, uh, Yes. Because I don't want to read a shitty southern accent. I don't want to read a valley girl who's mean to people all the time. I don't want to read the worst written Scottish accent that I've ever read in my entire life. I don't recommend Burned by PC and Kristen Cast <laughs> Because, like, they, they, like, throw in this weird thing where some of the characters go to Scotland 
so that Aphrodite, not Aphrodite, so that Zoe's warrior can figure out how to get into the spirit realm. And the Scottish accents are just so bad. And it's supposed to invoke this like super old world religion. And it just gets awkward. And it's weird. And I just don't care. Mm. Nothing about this book inspired any sort of emotions in me at all. It's less a druid and more of a dontred. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And it was just like the writing was just garbage. And one thing that really disappointed me was that we've talked before about um, an author's ability to write about a place. You've had several authors who have written it's about seemed, like they know what they're doing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like you. I remember your your book that was written by Sarah Evans, the country music artist. By and by. Yeah, the sweet by and by. Um, it was part of it was set in Tennessee. Uh-huh. And I remember you mentioning like you're pretty sure that she's from Tennessee. Just the way that she wrote about it makes it seem like she's at least very familiar with it. Yeah. But then she tried to write about Northern Iowa and very it was nice. bad. Yeah. And it was the, very the yeah. Northern Iowa University. And yeah. Iowa University. And this book had that too, except about Tulsa. And so they were like oh, I better go to the gap that's on the corner of such and such and such and such streets because I I need to get some new jeans. I looked on Google Maps. But the thing is, both of the authors are from Tulsa. Oh. So I was just disappointed in that. Like, if you are from a place and you are writing a book that is set in that place, I want to at least feel like I'm understanding that place. Or you're confident in it. If you constantly reference like cross streets, that seems like you're less confident. And you looked at looked it up on the internet. Yeah, but if you're like if you talk about the diner that everyone goes to, or you naturally in conversation you reference the high school, the local high school, or like you said, monuments or parks or. I don't know, like different things like that. It makes it a lot more realistic, but it has to come up naturally. Nothing about this book was natural. The dialogue, the dialect, the the explanations of the places, even the, I mean, the descriptions of who the characters are. You would think that by book number seven, you would be super confident in your characters that you could, like you feel comfortable with them. You know who they are so that when you have to explain their motivations for things or their background, it seems really real and organic and none of it did. Oh. It just all felt super flat. Jake and Amy, how dare you? How dare you get a bad book for us for this bad bad book book podcast? Oh, unjinx. Ugh. Blah. Jake and Amy... You got us some bad books. You did a good, terrible job. You did a good, terrible job. And now we are moving on to our... Oh, my God. Sue. What? We're back to the actual, like, plot. We finally went to the Iowa City Public Library and got each other books. We did. We went there today. And actually, I forget the book's name, so I'm going to have to pause it and so we can go, like, talk to people about it. So I went and got them. And... We've finally made it to the library again to retrack this podcast back off its uh, weird sort of detours, and we finally found books for each other. And Sue's going to tell you all about the books we found so you can read along. Please do that. So I am going to be reading a book called The Hidden Family by Charles Strauss which focuses on main character Miriam, who is described on the back cover as a hip tech journalist. Always fantastic. From Boston. Always great. So I already hate it. Mick is going to be reading, and I'm pretty excited about this. Mick is going to be writing, reading, not writing, reading Jane Ann Krentz, writing as Jane Castle. So why even say it? I don't know. And it is a book called Harmony. And it is, this is my favorite part, it is a compilation of two different stories, one called After Dark and one called Bridal Jitters. And Bridal Jitters is described as an official marriage of convenience between paranormal business partners. It is almost called off because of love. 
Uh, I can't not, wait for Vic to read this book. It's going to be straight up awful. So if you are feeling super brave, you can read along and then like uh, wait for us to finish. Listen to the podcast and discuss along with it in your car like Mick crazy person. Mick is really just hoping that you read his book, tell him all the key talking points, and then he doesn't have to read it. Yeah, and then I don't have to talk for like 45 minutes about socialism. Um, But we will see you in two weeks next Thursday, which as Susan tells you our Twitter handles and everything that you can use to look us up, I will look up that calendar date. If you would like to read the accompanying blog post to this episode, you can check out opinionsandother.blogspot.com. That is Mick's blog where we post all of our written responses to our bibliophile books. Um, You can also check us out on Twitter. Um, Mick is at Dikima, that's D-I-C-K-I-M-A-A, and I am at Susan J, that's S with three U's, S-A-N-J. Um, please feel free to talk, like, talk to us on Twitter, at us on Twitter, um, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud, like leave us share a review, subscribe. all that good stuff. Um, I currently have a poll up on my Twitter, if you would like to check that out. Um, about what we should do for our 20th episode, which will be our next, not our next episode, but the following episode after that. Um, we're coming up on 20 on our 10 episode, episode anniversary. Um, we, we did a worst of the worst episode. Um, we are deciding currently whether we're going to do another worst of the worst episode or if we're going to do a sequels episode, which is super exciting. Um, so feel free to weigh in by adding either of us on Twitter and letting us know what your preference would be um, or responding to the Twitter poll. That would be fantastic. We will see you on next on March 2nd. Holy cow, the third, mar- the third month of the year. The first March, to be fair. But the third month of the year, and frankly, it's going too slow already. Uh, my name is Mick Dickinson. This has been BiblioVile, my wife. Susan and I Johnson. am Susan Dickinson. Dickinson. I hope y'all have a great night. I hope you have a great night too. I love you, Matt. Bye, Matt. Bye, Dave. <laughs>